John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, uh, Manifesto on Modern Missions, writes this, missions exist because worship does not. Worship, he writes, is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. You ever considered how some of the activities that we partake in as God's people will one day cease? Missions exist because worship does not. What a wonderful thought to consider this morning. The reason that we give and go around the world, take the message of the gospel, is because worship or worshipers are silent. Missions and evangelism is ultimately about opening lips to the praise and glory of God. Your friends, your family, your neighbors do not currently praise God. They praise themselves. They praise man. They praise created things. Self. And when they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, they no longer praise themselves, no longer praise the world around them. That praise is turned toward God. This morning, we want to think about this subject of praise. That we have been created, that we have been saved to praise God. In fact, half of our service this morning has been devoted to the praise of God. To the uplifting of the name of the Lord. This morning we come to Psalm 117. Now, to be clear, we are jumping around a bit. Not because I'm crazy, but because I have a plan. And I showed you a plan a few weeks ago. Now, I'll continue to show you this plan. We are following our order of service through the Psalter. And we began with the Word. And, we, and I showed you last week that the, the Scriptures bookend our services because we want to communicate to one another and to those around us that God's Word informs our life from beginning to end. What we do in our gathered worship service takes its cue from the Word, not from men. But from the Word, we then lead into praise. And, and our service always begins with a, some aspect of praise. We want to praise God for who He is. When the men 
prepare to praise God through prayer. I disciple them and have them think through a number of aspects. And I tell them you have several rules. And one of those rules is that you can't ask God of anything. You can't petition God. Because the natural instinct of man is to want things from God rather than to acknowledge that God is worthy of praise despite what He does for us. See, that's thanksgiving. To thank God for what He's done for us. To praise God is different. It is to acknowledge His attribute that is transcendent and intrinsic to Him. In other words, it's His character. They're His divine attributes. And we come here to Psalm 117, the shortest psalm and the shortest chapter in your Bible. Remember a number of weeks ago I commended you to memorize books of the Bible? Friend, here's a wonderful one you can start with. You can, you, can mem- you can tell all of your friends you memorized an entire chapter in the Bible and they will be impressed not knowing it is the shortest. But as we come to the smallest chapter, we should not conclude that because of its length, the message is also small. This small psalm has a big message. Spurgeon commenting on this psalm says this, this psalm, which is very little in its letter, is exceedingly large in its spirit. For bursting all bounds of race or nationality, it calls upon all mankind to praise the name of the Lord. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a 36-page commentary on Psalm 117. That is 18 pages per verse. And I know that my brother Brian Hendrickson is encouraged to know that I'm preaching such a small verse today. Psalm 117 is a part of a collection of psalms known as the Hallel. The Hallel is the Hebrew word that we get hallelujah from. Hallel means to praise God. And this psalm begins with and ends with in the collection beginning in Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 is the collection known in the Jewish community as the Hallel. In fact, Jesus himself would have taken part of this particular tradition of singing the Hallel during the Passover when he instituted the Lord's Supper. If you'll remember, the Gospel writers tell us that after the Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives singing hymns. What were they singing? Well, they were singing the Hallel. They were singing Psalm 117. Imagine, if you will, with all of the trappings and all of the teachings that Jesus had just instructed as they hear Psalm 117 sung by their Savior. When the Israelites would have sang this hymn, 
In faith, they would have recalled both their privileged position and their reason for existence. This is why this psalm is so important. What an introduction for such a short psalm. I invite you to turn there to Psalm 117. It's found on page 511 in the Pew Bibles provided. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The character of God propels us to magnify His greatness among the nations. This short song solidifies God's character, boils it down in such a way as the psalmist reflects on God's character, it propels the singer to praise, to magnify the greatness of God, not merely among themselves, the Israelites, but among the nations. This short psalm helps us answer two big questions. First, who does God desire to worship Him? Who does God desire to worship Him? And secondly, why should we worship God? Who worships and why? Have you ever considered why we do what we do? Why is it that among all the things Christians could be doing today, why we devote so much time to the praise of God to song, or to the praise of God through prayer, or to the praise of God through preaching? These are the two things we want to think about, these two questions. Who does God desire to worship Him? And why should we worship God? Number one, who? Well, we find the who there in verse one. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol Him, all peoples. Look at there, verse one. Makes it very clear that the Lord is to be magnified among the nations. That is, that God desires that every tribe and tongue and nation praise Him and not man. What does it mean to praise God? What does it mean to praise Him? Well, simply put, the word to praise, that Hebrew word, hallel, means to give credit for all of life, all of our abilities, our strength, and our successes. To praise someone, and in the context here to praise God, is to give credit where credit is due. To acknowledge that God is the supreme source of all things that we enjoy. That God is the one who has given us our success. God is the one who has given us our abilities and our strength. In fact, God is the one who gave breath in our body that we might live. 
To praise God is to acknowledge that He is the supreme being and that we are not. You can see then how praise of God runs counter to human pride. Praise and pride are polar opposites in human experience. A prideful person desires praise for themselves. They desire to be acknowledged, to be lifted high, to be extolled. But when we understand that God is the supreme source of all that we have, we desire that He is lifted higher than ourselves. That He is glorified. That He is acknowledged as the one true and living God. We see also here in verse 1 that God's desire is that He be acknowledged, that He get credit where credit is due, from all nations, all peoples. Now, some have wrongly understood the calling of Israel. But the Bible teaches us that the calling of Israel was for the sake of the whole world and not merely a particular people. That the Old Testament constantly nurtures the hope that a day will come when the Gentiles will be gladly welcomed in the worship of God. For it would be wrong to read your Old Testament to think that God was only about saving a Israelite, a Jewish people, and that God had no hopes of saving the world. Frankly, most of us in this room, if not 99% of us, are Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. And the gospel has come to us because that was God's plan. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, where God cuts the covenant with Abraham, the sort of founding father of the Israelite people, God says this, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the world shall be blessed. So the Israelites were to be a blessing to the nations around them. They were to be the benefit of these other countries. Well, when God renewed the covenant with the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, God had made their way to the promised land as they did. God said this to them, Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The calling of Israel was for the sake of the whole world. Well, and of course, as we read the story of Scripture, the Israelites were not a blessing to the nations around them. In fact, they were a curse. They became a stumbling block because of their sinful rebellion against God. The nation of Israel became a means of God's judgment upon a whole host of nations because of their willful rebellion. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses... Psalm 117, 
when he writes in Romans 15 to argue for the gospel going to the nations. He argues that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was for Jew and Gentile and that they are now united as one in the gospel. This universal call here in Psalm 117 reminds us of this truth. That the gospel is for all people. For everyone. Therefore, we must take the gospel to all nations. Some have wrongly and and again, I believe this is just merely a straw man argument, have accused those of a more reformed leaning to being anti-missions or being anti-evangelism. Friend, that could not be further from the truth because it's biblical that we take the gospel to the nations. This is what we're commanded right here in Psalm 117. We believe that we ought to share the the good news of Jesus with every man, woman, and child that we are confronted with. And trust that God is in the business of saving sinners. And that He uses the means of preaching and evangelism to save sinners. Some might say, well, why didn't God just Speak and save. Why did we have to go through all of the the, the rigors of evangelism and world and global missions and, and preaching in order for one to come to know Christ? Well, friend, the simple answer is God appoints the means. God chose the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of evangelism. The foolishness of you having to communicate with your children and your neighbors and your friends. The gospel. It's the foolishness of preaching, you see, that God has chosen to save. We see here this universal call to worship. That is the call that each one of us This desire for all people. Friend, I wonder, do you have that desire? Do you desire all people to be saved? Or just some people? You know the people that you like? The people who haven't hurt you? The people who haven't wronged you? The people who haven't gossiped about you? Do you desire all people to come to know Christ This ought to encourage us in our evangelism. We ought to have serious introspection if we do not have a desire for the people of our community to come to know Christ in a saving way. That ought to give us pause. That ought to lead us to pray, God, why is my heart so hardened to my neighbor that I, that I have refused to share the gospel with them. Why? When your word so clearly tells me that you desire all men and all women to bow their knee to King Jesus. Friend, how do you praise God in your life? Do the activities of praise only occur on Sundays? 
Brothers and sisters, we ought to see that every act from morning to evening, from sunup to sundown, should be done with praise in our hearts. We ought to do all things for the glory of God. Whether we're washing the dishes and taking out trash, or we're doing some more noble tasks, we ought to do all to the praise and glory of God. This is what we affirmed in that first hymn that we sang, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. John Wesley, in this hymn, it was reflecting on his life and the desire to make Jesus known where he was unknown. That if he was given the ability to have a thousand lifetimes, he would use every one of them to make Jesus known. Is this true of your life? Do you desire... Does your tongue defy that testimony? What is on your tongue? What, what do you talk about? What is it that you share in communication with other human beings? Is it the praise of God, the acknowledgement of His greatness and His goodness found in Christ? Or is it you and your goodness and your greatness and all the wonderful things you've accomplished? We ought to extol the name of God. The word extol means to lift high, to, to lift loudly. It has the idea of bragging on someone. You know, it's hard to brag on God when, you, when you're the self-made man that you are. It's hard to brag on God when you think you got yourself to this place in life on your own abilities. It's hard to brag on God when you don't understand that everything you have in life has been given from the Father above from whom there is no shadow due to change. We ought to be bragging on God more and more as God's people. Not only the goodness, but the fact that He saves sinners like you and I. We ought to brag on God in that He saved a wicked and vile sinner for His glory. God desires that all people, that every one of them, should praise Him and extol Him. But why? Why should we worship God? What has He done for us? Well, this is what we see in verse 2. The why. Why should the Lord be praised? Why should we extol Him among all peoples? Verse 2, because of who He is. Because of who He is. We see here in verse 2, two aspects of God's character. Two parts of God's character. Now, of course, there's much more that could be said about the character of God. This isn't all of it. This isn't the sum total. But this is how the nation of Israel would have known God. Number one, we see that God is steadfast in love. Notice here, verse 2, for great is His steadfast love toward us. Great is His steadfast love towards us. This is a special word used here by the, by the hymn writer, by the psalmist. This steadfast love of the Lord is His covenant-keeping love, His loyal love. I love how the New English translation translates this. It, it says, for His loyal love towers over us. How great it is. 
the Lord is to be magnified among the nations because He is a God of love. He is a God of love. Well, how has God shown love? Notice here He says, for great is His steadfast love toward us. Towards the covenant people of God. Towards the the nation of Israel. Well, how has God shown love to them? Well, that's what we heard earlier in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. As God reveals Himself to Moses, He reveals Himself through word. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But who will by no means forgive the guilty. Have you ever thought about that verse? God is a forgiving God, but God punishes sin. You think, well, how do you reconcile the very fact that God is a forgiving, merciful God, that He is steadfast in His love, but that He will punish sinners? How do you reconcile those two? Brothers and sisters, the only way we can reconcile those is, is as the Apostle Paul does in Romans 5.8 when he quotes that passage, but God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words... The proof of God's love, the evidence of His love for you and for me, is that Christ Jesus died an atoning death that our sin rightly deserved. That God forgives sin. He doesn't just sort of sweep it under the proverbial rug, but He deals with it. He punishes sin. He judges sin in judging Christ. And all of the sacrificial system and all of the slaughtered lambs and bulls and rams, all of that was foreshadowing a once-for-all atoning sacrifice where the eternal Son of God would die the death that we deserved. God's love for us is His nature and not our worth. This ought, to, this ought to get you up in the morning to know that your worth, your value, is your acceptability before a holy and righteous God is not you. It is not me. It is nothing that you've done. It is solely based upon the character of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the way we talk about love must be in this biblical sense that God is steadfast in His love. His love is enduring love. It's not a fickle love. God's love for you doesn't grow and diminish like the ever-changing tide. That is not God's love for you, friend. God is not more impressed with you today because you came to church on Father's Day. 
No, no, no. God is not accepting you today because you did some religious deed or because you gave or because you did some. No, no, friend. If you believe upon Christ, He accepts you because He accepts His own Son. And your acceptability this morning is because the Son is accepted, that His sacrifice was accepted. This is wonderful truth. This means that God hears your prayers even when you're unfaithful. That means that God loves you and is for you even when you don't read your Bible. This is wonderfully freeing this morning that despite our rebellion and our sin and our wickedness, God is steadfast. When we are unfaithful, He is faithful. This is what we affirm in our hymn, He will hold me fast. He holds us fast. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I am sure of this, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. Friend, here's a wonderful truth to think about. Not even you can mess this up. Not even you. God is that steadfast in His love for you. The embers of God's love never grow cold. They remain hot forever. And spend your time meditating on the love of God for you in Christ. Allow this to fuel your praise of Him. Secondly, we see here, not only is God steadfast in love, but notice here, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. One might say, well, what's the difference here between steadfast love and faithfulness? It is interesting that that these two are often paired together in your Bible. For example, back to Exodus chapter 34, this sort of pinnacle moment in the life of Israel when God reveals Himself to Moses, it is paired together the steadfast love and faithfulness. And throughout the Psalter, these two ideas are often wed together to indicate the fact that God never gives up. That God never gives up. Now we may give up. We may feel weary today. We might be ready to quit. But God will never quit on you. Now think of how often the Israelites were quitting on God. They were constantly being drawn away after other gods. Constantly seeking to create gods of their own imagination. But yet God was faithful to them. Even when they were faithless, He remained faithful. This passage provides us a rich assurance of God's eternal love towards us in Christ. Friend, when you do not feel saved, and when you do not have a sense of the presence of God, and let me say that those are normal experiences in the Christian life. So when you feel that that God is far from you, or you do not feel acceptable to God, friend, let me encourage you with this truth. You're not alone. You're not alone. But when you feel that way, you must inform your conscience with the truth found in this passage. That God is faithful toward you. 
That God will never leave you nor forsake you. Marvel at God's faithfulness. Our assurance, brothers and sisters, is not found in our ability to hold fast, but in God's nature. We do not rest in our faithfulness, but in God's faithfulness. That is why we sing great is thy faithfulness. And he is faithful, isn't he? He is faithful when everyone else is faithless. Some might wonder, why do we spend so much time singing? All I want to do is hear the preaching, as long as it's short. Why do we spend so much time? Of all the things we could be doing this morning, No doubt there's many things that are competing for your time and attention. Why is it that Christians have taken up their Sunday mornings with singing old songs written from years ago? Why have we taken up time to to sing and to pray, to, to make much of Jesus? Friend, because of what Jesus has done for us. Frankly, I can't think of anything else I would rather do than to praise the name of God. To extol His greatness and goodness. Friend, you understand that Christians sing because they're compelled to sing. Compelled how? Compelled because they're sinners who have been saved. They were on a road to hell, an eternal place of damnation, an eternal place where there are no do-overs, no second chances. But God in His infinite grace and love, His steadfastness and His faithfulness decided to save sinners, to redeem them. And so because of that, we sing. We sing because... We're compelled. We we can think of nothing better to do than to put our words to song and to make much of Jesus in this place. And to invite others to join us in that song of celebration of God's grace in Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you compelled in such a way because of what God has done for you in Christ. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, of where I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied. Oh, that is our assurance this morning, brothers. Sisters, this is our assurance that, the, that this just and holy and wrathful God, His wrath is satisfied. The greatness of God's everlasting love compels us to go to the nations. 
We want others to know this God to be washed up in His everlasting love. Friend, this is the truth. This is the truth about this church. That unless we are compelled Because the gospel has transformed our life, unless we are compelled because of the saving work of Christ, unless we know of the steadfast love of the Lord, we will never take the gospel to those around us. No one will be compelled to God. No one will be compelled to go to the nations with the gospel until they are first gripped by the message of the gospel. Until you are so full of God that you never want to go anywhere else but to make His name known. Brothers and sisters, you and I will never be motivated to share the gospel until the gospel is so deep it becomes the marrow of our bones. It becomes the words of our lips. And my prayer is that we would be compelled to go to those around us, because we want to make Jesus' name known in the homes of Avon Park. Because we want to see sinners saved for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, if we don't go, who will? If we don't take the gospel to the people around us, who will? Who will? No one. And in the midst of moral chaos in this culture, let us not be silent, but let us speak the truth of the gospel to a lost and dying world. This is what the Apostle Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this. What have we concluded, friends? That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We're compelled to go because of what Christ has done for us. Let us marinate in that this morning for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that our hearts might be broken for the lost around us. That if we do not have lips that are loosened to share the gospel, no one will be saved. That you have appointed the means, and the means is that we, as your messengers of reconciliation, go and reconcile men to you through the death of Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray. Compel us, we pray. Let our hearts break for the lostness around us that all nations might praise you. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol Him, all peoples, for great is His steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Lord, we praise You for Your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen. I do so through song and affirming these truths that we desire for the...